0: All right, so uh, this morning's uh, message uh, I titled, A Time to Party. Uh, you'll find out what that's all about as we go through uh, the text this morning. Um, and I don't always do this, but today I've given a big idea that um, Jesus has called sinners and only sinners to follow him. Uh, and three points. one, The first point is, even the worst of the worst can be saved. Uh, Secondly, that salvation calls for celebration. And three, righteous people don't need saving. So uh, we're going to look at that this morning. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be evident to us in our text as we see the event of Jesus calling Levi, also known as Matthew, the tax collector, and the fancy party that Levi threw for Jesus. Now, the previous two weeks, we've looked at stories of healings. We looked at a leper and a paralytic, and in those messages, we looked at the power of Jesus to heal and how it really points to the much more important work of Christ, the power to save, the power to remove sin, the power to turn the wrath of God aside from sinners who repent in his name. Jesus displayed his power in those healings, but so much more important than physical healing is the cleansing of sin, which Jesus is pleased to do for those who call on his name in faith. Now, prior to those two sermons, we had looked at how, uh, well, we were in Jonah uh, for a month, but before that, we were looking at how Jesus called some fishermen to faith, you may recall. Uh, This morning, we're gonna see how he also calls a tax collector, who in that day, even more so than today, was a very hated person in the eyes of almost every Jew. So let's look at the text, starting in Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Why is it that tax collectors were so hated in those days? Well, no one likes to give their hard-earned money to taxes, at least not most people. There may be some strange people that would actually love to pay their taxes, but I would guess that survey would say that overwhelmingly people are not generally happy to see a big portion of their money going to taxes. Now, to be certain, God himself established taxes, but they were nothing like what we have today And I was thinking about listing all the types of taxes we have today, but it would just make us all sad. And the point of this sermon is not to bring us to tears, but to make us rejoice that Jesus saves sinners, among whom I am the worst one here. Now let us note, however, that the Jews hated the tax collectors in those days almost worse than they would hate a murderer. Because tax collectors in their mind were not only cheats and extortionists, which almost every one of them was. They bled people dry. They charged more taxes than they needed to. But the worst thing than that even was that they were traitors. Who were they collecting for? The Romans. The Jews hated being under Roman rule. And to have a person in the community go and work for them as a tax collector was considered a horrific betrayal of one's own people. Tax collectors then, in that day, were for hire, or maybe you could say they were contract tax collectors. So Rome would assign them an area of taxation. It might be trade. It might be a poll tax type thing. There was different ways they taxed. But they would tell that particular tax collector, here's how much we expect to get from you every year. And so long as they produced that money and gave it to Rome, Rome didn't care how much more they collected. And so they were, they were traitors. You can imagine in a system like that, cheating was normalized. And so Rome didn't really care how nasty these tax collectors were, so long as they collected and gave Rome their share. And it wasn't anything like today, where you can go online and see a tax professional uh, or look up questions online, try to figure out how you can pay the least amount possible within the law. But at that time, you didn't know what you were supposed to pay. There was nothing published or, you know, you could go and find tax forms. There was no fee schedule. Just whatever the collector said you had to pay, you better pay. Or he would alert the Roman soldiers to have you arrested. And if you couldn't pay, well, this generous tax collector would gladly loan you the money to pay him with exorbitant rates of interest. So not only were they dirty tax collectors, they were dirty bankers as well. And God had told his people not to exact interest on fellow brothers, but the tax collector didn't care about that. To him, the Roman way was more important than God's way because he got rich off it. So verse 27, when we see that Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Remember, Levi is Matthew. And in the gospel of Matthew, he refers to himself as Matthew. And Matthew, by the way, means gift of God. So many mothers find their children to be gifts from God. This name literally means that. Um, Some have assumed that because we see two sets of names used for him, interchangeably, seemingly, in Scripture, Levi and Matthew, that uh, they say, well, oh, this must be one of those cases in Scripture where God changed the name of someone he was calling into service. But Scripture says nothing about that. So I think we're best not to, you know, do that, to sweep that idea out of our minds if it is there, it's not impossible, but we must be careful not to go beyond what Scripture actually says. So let it be enough for us that just as throughout human history, many people have had more than one name they used, and so that's probably the case here. So Jesus sees this man, this vile and hated man, and calls him to follow him. And just as we said with the fishermen, we need not assume that these... these. Uh, This means he just irresponsibly walked away from his obligation, but he most likely set his things in order or turned his tax booth over to his helpers and quickly followed Jesus. And verse 28 says, leaving everything he followed, he rose and followed him. So Jesus gave him a command, and this command came with the power of God for Levi to obey. You see, many are called, but few are chosen. This man was most certainly chosen. By Jesus, Jesus had Levi in mind to call him because his effective call was based on the fact that every person who believes is known to him, Jesus, before the foundations of the earth were laid. And the reason he knows beforehand of who will respond to his call is because he determined this to happen. He predestined all who would believe Romans 8:28 to 30 says that we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is called the golden chain. Those he foreknew, knew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The Bible is so ultimately clear on this point. He called Levi knowing that the response would be faith Levi was one of the predestined ones who would believe unto salvation. In our men's study yesterday, we were talking about how Paul and how frustrated some of our grammar teachers today probably would be with him at times. Because something I find very exciting when reading Paul is that he gets so energizing thinking about the grace of God to save that he kind of gushes. He, what I mean by this is Paul will at times get, seem to be getting ready to put things very logically, and he's doing that, and then he gets carried away in the thrill of contemplating the greatness of God's love toward the elect, and he just writes everything that comes to mind, and he just pours it onto the paper for us to enjoy. And in Ephesians chapter 1, for example, we find that in the Greek uh, there is one of the longest run-on sentences you will ever encounter, certainly in all of the Bible, And for our sake of making it easier for us to read, our English translations have put in sentence breaks and commas and such. But Paul wrote what for us is many verses all as one long run-on sentence. And what is it that Paul is getting so excited about? He's getting excited about the idea that God had planned this salvation and knew who he was saving from before time began. And so Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, and I'm going to read it, if not all in one breath, at least trying to give a sense of the way I think Paul may have been motivated as this was written, starting in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places,' In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Whew. Now, that was all one run-on sentence in the Greek, but Paul continues in verse 15 saying, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he will I don't think six months ever go by where I don't include this section of Ephesians in a sermon. You know why? Because it gets me excited. And I need to get excited, and so do you. Contemplating with Paul, the incredible, majestic God who put into place this great salvation ought to get you excited too. So remember the big idea this morning, that Jesus has called sinners and only sinners to follow him. In the three points, even the worst of the worst can be saved. Salvation calls for celebration, and righteous people don't need saving. So what got Paul so excited? That God blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that he predestined us for adoption to himself, that in Christ we have redemption through his blood forgiveness of our trespasses that in the richness of his grace that he lavished on us and made known to us the mystery of his will that this happened at the exact right time in history the fullness of time which paul likewise wrote about to the galatian church as well in galatians 4 4 when the fullness of time had come god sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law. You see, God did this at the exact right time. Jesus was born at the exact right time. He died on the cross at the exact right time. He rose from the dead at the exact right time. He called Levi at the exact right time. And if you are saved, then he saved you at the exact right time. He caused for you to hear his gospel, the good news of the cross. He has you in that seat right now at the exact right time for you to hear this message. That you, if you put faith in Christ, were loved by God from before he even made this earth and were predestined to believe in him, and there is only one qualification to need salvation. You must be a sinner, and yes we 've all sinned romans three twenty three all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so every person meets the category of those who need saving. Every human that has ever lived was born into sin, born with the sin nature of our federal head, Adam. Who sinned the one time, and that was enough to convict the entire race of humans, and yet, not only were we born into sin, we willingly sin as well. Yes, we, everyone, are fully qualified to be in need of His salvation. And every person will be responsible for his or her choice to follow Christ, everyone. All are called to believe. It is a command for every person to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent of our sins, to rest in his salvation on the cross, and yet not all respond to that call. Many are called, Matthew twenty-two fourteen, 14, but few are chosen. When Matthew wrote that, didn't he know, as much as anyone, that when he was sitting in that tax booth and Jesus called on him to follow, that he was not only called, he was chosen. This wretch... This cheat, this despised man who betrayed his people by his deceitful practices was personally called and chosen by Jesus. And that proves our first point, that Jesus is quite capable of saving the worst of the worst. Bring into this building the wretched sinners and see if when they hear the gospel, they may turn out to be among the called and chosen because he delights in saving the most wretched. And such were almost all of the most significant figures of faith in the Bible. They were adulterers and murderers and cheats and lazy people and all kinds of wretches that God called to himself. Who were chosen in Christ before the beginning. Levi or Matthew was one. Are you? Should not the modern church want to see the same sorts of people saved? How I rejoice when I think of a man who my whole family loves, who I would trust any day of the week to watch my children because he's one of the kindest and gentlest people I've ever known and saw it in the scriptures, and he was an elder in the church I used to pastor, and yet as a young man, he was nothing like that. He killed a man in a fight. He went to prison, and then as it turned out, he met a pretty young lady who brought him to a Bible study. He went with the pretty young lady. She brought him to Christ, He heard the gospel. He married her, by the way. (laughs) It's a great story. And one day, a mentor of his asked him, what are you going to do with Jesus? What a profound question. And I ask you the same. What will you do with Jesus? That same man who had such a rough upbringing had a brother as well. And let me tell you, this man was a meth addict. And addiction counselors will tell you that meth addiction is one of the toughest to beat. But this man at age 54, when so many had given up on him, submitted himself to Jesus Christ and went into a Christ-centered program and came out free because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Now, what about the other disciples? What did they think about Jesus bringing along a tax collector? And I can imagine that even those men may not have been too happy They were just recently saved, you see. They were not fully sanctified yet. Certainly they had concerns about Levi. It's likely that he attacked their fishing vessels and their fish and the path to get to their fishing vessels. That's just how it worked. They probably felt he was the wrong type to come along with us. Yet Jesus called him. Jesus chose him. Jesus saved him, and Jesus made him into a disciple and an apostle. This tax collector was exactly the sort that Jesus loves to save. How wretched are you? Do you think you're beyond saving? You aren't. You have many sins, do you? Good, because God is all the more glorified when Christ saves you. He only saves sinners anyway. He saves the worst of the worst. I can testify on my own behalf. I have wretched things in my past that I wish I could forget. I have done shameful things, even having been raised in the church. As much as I would like to put a sliding scale on my sin and compare it to someone worse than me, maybe you, I cannot forget that even the smallest sins made me a traitor of God. As R.C. Sproul often said, we're all guilty of cosmic treason, And yet, some of us, he saves, and willingly and gladly, he saved the wretched. And what do you think, church? Would you be happy to have a really awful person come in the door? Someone with a terrible reputation, someone we all would be ashamed to be seen with. You think think how glorious it is when a sinner comes to repent. When a sinner, vile and ugly, is cleansed and made pure in Christ. Yes, if heaven rejoices in that, my friends, then we ought to as well. And we ought to call them to come and follow Christ. Heaven rejoices when a sinner repents, and so does the repentant sinner rejoice as well, as we see Levi did in verse 29. It says, Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. With them, sorry. What a time this must have been. What motivated Levi to want to give a party Was it his own sense of release from sin, the burden dropping? Was it that he loved Jesus for saving him and calling him and choosing him? Was it because he wanted all his fellow sinners to have an encounter with Jesus? Yes, yes, and yes. And this is a proper response when you are truly set free from the dread of hell. Then when Christ has turned away the wrath of God from you, the sinner who deserves that wrath, and Jesus takes it upon himself, he is worthy of celebrating. And when you receive the gift of eternal life, that is worth celebrating. And when you are wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, that is worth celebrating. And when you have felt the love of God in the person of Jesus, that is worth celebrating. Jesus has called sinners and only sinners to follow him. The worst of the worst can be saved. Salvation calls for celebration. But righteous people don't need saving, right? So Levi has this great party. He fully committed to Jesus. He fully was ready to follow him with all of his heart. And he fully understood that those he had formerly been like desperately needed this salvation as well. So he has a great party. But what happens? Every party has a pooper. That's why we invited the Pharisees. right? Verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Actually, it shows they're probably not at the party. They're being party poopers from outside the party because they wouldn't have ever come in there. These guys again, right? Remember last week, our warning that when you are very zealous to do good and honor God, you can become like this where you are so prim and proper, you cannot imagine that you should have anything to do with these sinners. The Pharisees actually practiced what they believed which was a separation from worldly people. They believed that that would be some sort of a merit for them. So they wouldn't go anywhere near any of these people. These Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples of Jesus. Maybe they thought they could shame them into leaving Jesus. So they say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Notice how they put those phrases together, tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees are practicing guilt by association. Certainly it's not advised that we intentionally spend a lot of time with people bent on sin. We shouldn't do that necessarily, but the Pharisees are completely ignorant of the mission of Jesus. Do you know what this attitude has throughout uh, history? It's infected almost every denomination at some point. They may have started out with the wretched, but it only takes a few generations before they're like this. They're so clean cut, they forgot about where they came from before Christ. And we don't want any body odor in the building. And we don't want anyone immodestly dressed. And we don't want someone guilty of murder or an adulterer to darken our doors. And yet Jesus delights to save exactly these types. Jesus is ready and willing and has even already chosen and called some people who you and I would likely run from if we were not thinking biblically. But let's think biblically. Why don't we? Who is the gospel for? Sinners. Who is the church for? Sinners who are forgiven. What is the church's mission? To make disciples, to go out and share the gospel with every creature, to go grow in grace together. We gather to hear the word of God, to encourage each other, to walk beside one another, but we also must not ever stop looking outside the doors of the church. Do you lack energy or drive to see new people come into the faith? Be honest about it. And if you lack that, if you lack love for the lost, then confess that sin. Repent of it and ask God to give you his heart for the lost. And if God so graces us to bring in more Levites or some murderers or a prostitute or someone who knows nothing more than the basic gospel, but if God were to bring one of them to himself and deposit them here at Oasis Church, will we be ready? Will we be willing to take them in? Will we remember, but for the grace of God, there we would be as well? Will we be patient with them as they struggle to have the mind of Christ when they were raised in this crooked world? Will we stick with them when they don't mature in the faith as quickly as we would like them to? Will we bear with them when their questions about the faith seem so basic and we're so beyond the basics at this point? Will we have the patience with them as they share their struggles as a new believer because their friends and family abandon them or mock them for coming to Jesus? Now, Jesus has only called sinners to follow him. You see, the Pharisees may very well have started out with a true desire for holiness, but along the way, they began to see themselves as outside the need of grace. And Jesus then tells them that if they see themselves as so pure to not be in need of his ministry then that is just evidence that they are not going to attain this salvation. In 31 and 32, it says, And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Jesus only saves sinners because righteous people do not need him at all. While these Pharisees see themselves as righteousness, righteous, they don't realize that their righteousness is filthy rags. And I'm so glad the Lord allowed me to know of my own wretchedness. I'm still blind to a lot of it. But he allowed me to know that I was wretched. I'm so glad he caused me to see the truth of the word of God that tells me who I am and who he is. I'm so glad that God in his grace has saved me because I have received the most uneven exchange as many of you well know and understand. The most uneven exchange in all the world is this, a sinner, the vile, lying, greedy, lazy, murderous, angry at the world, cheating, sneering sinner who comes to Christ has all of his sin put on Christ. It was my sin that held him there. And yes, he takes all of it, all of our sins, the sins of our past, the sins that we just committed today, the sins we will commit tomorrow. Christ takes every one of those sins upon himself for those he came to save. He becomes the scapegoat of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes all of it. That's what he takes. But what he gives in its place is his own righteousness. You see, because of Jesus, we who have faith in him are justified. That means before the face of God, the one in Christ stands sinless, even though he has sinned. Why? Because Jesus took that sin away, and in exchange, we receive his righteousness. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned this great illustration from the Book of Zechariah, he takes that sin away from us. It's represented in that passage as the high priest Joshua having his dirty clothes taken off and replaced by pure vestments. And I'm going to read a portion of that again this morning quickly. Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments that represents the righteousness of Christ. And and I said let them put a clean turban on his head. That's representing having your mind transformed. Let them put a clear, clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Who's the angel of the Lord? What an exchange. Some of you may have worked somewhere at some time where they had a uniform service and there are companies that come around, they take your dirty uniform and they replace it with a clean uniform or the housekeeper at a hotel who removes the dirty sheets and towels and remakes the room or the guys who power wash your house when it all, had all that green and black filth on it and, and then after that it looks so nice. Jesus has cleansed us. He's taken away our filth. He's replaced it with his own purity and righteousness so that I can stand with complete confidence despite all of the boneheaded mistakes of my life, past, present, and future, that because Jesus Christ called me, then chose and chose me and granted me faith to believe that I have already received his righteousness, at least in God's eyes. The healthy don't need a physician, but the sick. The righteous don't need cleaning, but the filthy. Oh, and of course, we know that none are righteous, no, not one, so we're back where we started, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All will be judged, and many will be condemned to an eternal, conscious torment. Eternal means eternal, forever. Conscious means you're aware of it. Torment means torment. All will be judged. And many will be condemned to eternal conscious torment as God's wrath is continually poured out on them through all eternity. But those who he called and chose, they will be saved, forgiven, and granted eternal life. If there had been any righteous people, they would not have needed saving. And if you are among the righteous who have put faith in him, then you don't need to be saved again. Some preach that you can lose your salvation. That's not what the Bible teaches. Remember Ephesians, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I read a moment ago. If you're in Christ, you're never out of Christ. He does not lose any that the Father has given him. John chapter 17. In my life, I have had those times where I've questioned whether I was still saved. Maybe you have too, but be encouraged. You cannot lose salvation if you truly have it. 2 Corinthians 1 21 and 22 says, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. In Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Okay, tell me now, you who think you were saved and lost it, are you more powerful than the Holy Spirit of God? Can you yourself unseal what he has sealed? Can Satan, the demons, or any other person unseal the salvation that you have sealed by the Holy Spirit? So it is that if you truly believed, you are one of Christ's. And if you are one of his, you always will be. Can we now celebrate together? How great is this salvation? So what must we do? That is the question asked by those who hear the word of God and the Holy Spirit confirms in their heart that this is the word that is true. The question they ask is, what do we do? They cried out on the day of Pentecost those the Holy Spirit was convincing of this truth. They wanted to know what they needed to do. You see, Peter presented the gospel message to them and some of them were cut to the heart and I pray that someone will be cut to the heart this morning. I will close with this, how Peter closed his sermon on that day and how the people responded and what Peter told them. He gave a sermon where he talked about Jesus Christ and what it meant to believe in him for salvation and what it meant that Jesus was the true Christ of God that had been murdered on the cross. And we pick up in Acts 2.36, it says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know, this is the very end of his sermon, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And I had about finished the sermon yesterday and saw this quote by Spurgeon. Someone posted on Twitter, and I thought, what a good capstone. Spurgeon said this to... His congregation, and I'll read it to you. This morning, if you are either forgiven or you are not, you are either clean in God's sight or else the wrath of God abideth on you. And I beseech you, do not rest till you know which it is. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have called wretched sinners and chosen wretched sinners to receive your salvation. And as we look at the story of Levi, also known as Matthew, Lord, as we we see how you called him from that tax booth, from his life of corruption and, and his hated status among his people, but you had made him your own. Lord, let us rejoice in that. And Lord, let us beseech you that you would bring to us people like Levi who you are calling to yourself. May you place them in our paths and may we have the boldness to speak the words of truth because we love you, Lord, and we want you glorified to see the salvation of people that come to you. And we're privileged to be part of that process. Lord, if we've had any sense in us that there are people we'd rather not see here at this church because they don't fit some parameter we may think of in our own mind. If we have ever for a moment judged people before we allowed you to show us who they were, we ask your forgiveness. And Lord, I pray that you would bring us each a new heart for the lost. Lord, would you do that for us? Would you give us your heart for your lost people? Those who are in our spheres of influence around us, Lord, may we have a burden for them. We'll only have that, Lord, if it's a gift from you, and we pray for that gift, the gift of a desire for evangelism and seeing people come to you. Lord, I thank you that as you have demonstrated through your word that once someone has come to faith in Christ, they never, ever, ever lose their salvation if they were truly in you in the first place. Yes, there can be some who say they believe but don't really, and they may walk away. But those who are truly yours, Lord, even when they fall, you preserve them. Lord, if if there's anyone here listening or online or wherever that hears this message, I pray that they have now heard and have confidence in their salvation. I pray, Lord, that you would boost all of our confidence in your salvation, that our faith would be ever increasing, that we would ever be bolder in our own minds to know that this is the truth when the world throws all the lies at us. And help us to be your witnesses all around our our community and throughout the world. As you see fit, Lord, may we be your instruments. Lord, after all is said and done, we need to rejoice like Levi did. We ought to be able to have a daily, if not having a daily party, Lord, we should have a party attitude. Because if we're saved in Christ, We're no different than Levi, who was brought from the worst to the worst into the glory of God. We received that most uneven exchange where you took all of our sin, all our wretchedness and vileness and hatred, everything that we have that's undesirable, you took on yourself and bore the penalty for it. And in exchange, give us the righteousness of Christ, who before God pleads our case, Constantly. Lord, let us rest in that assurance, knowing that our faith is real, it's strong. We truly do attain Christ. We obtain Christ through faith, and we have that promise. Lord, I pray that your people would respond to this message as you have said said, fit. Increase all of our faith, Lord. Jesus' name, amen.